Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. What's missing? Love. Love. You can't save the world by condemnations or admonitions or lectures or logic or pristine doctrine. You can save it only by representing Jesus Christ to humanity. The incarnate word who is incarnate love. And that can't be done apart from love. Jesus himself said this. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples. By your love, one for another. <laughs> and if we don't have that, how are we going to convince the world that Jesus is the Son of God, our Savior? Father Delp also wrote this. He, he wrote, um, The traces of God in humanity are becoming increasingly indistinct. Why was this the case? Again, you can sum that up in one word, secular humanism. What Pius IX and Pius X targeted in their opposition to what they called modernism was its intent to build a new social order with the rejection of God as its point of departure. Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, was the first person to take that course. There are three more encyclicals that we should keep in mind that figured significantly in this whole build-up and the carrying out of Vatican II. Moderate Magistra by Pope John XXIII, Progressio Popolorum by Pope Paul VI, and Evangelii Nunciandi by Pope Paul VI, ten years after Vatican II. If you were to read only these three papal letters, you'd come a long way towards gaining a good understanding of the why behind Vatican II the need to understand what it means to be human, the need to work together in human solidarity, the need to achieve justice, unity, and peace that are really called for by the dignity of the human person. And what did this require? Well, it required, first of all, the elimination of all adversarial relationships. The church was, for 400 years, in an adversarial relationship with not only the Protestants, but with science and, and with a, a lot of other things in society. And what Vatican II did was declare unilaterally what Christ told us to do in the first place. Love your enemies. Do good to those who calumniate you. And, you know, this is a tough thing for us to learn. We have to, uh, when we look at Vatican II more closely, we see how that works. That uh, if we don't begin to love our enemies, it's likely that we'll perish with them. You know, you can't have these uh, Stone Age religions running around where you can kill everybody, they don't do this or that. When you got the weapons we got today, hey, that doesn't hold, I mean, that's bad. And uh, this, this whole idea of, of, uh, of tolerance, that's a key thing in, in the world today. Tolerance today, people don't understand it. They think it's like, I've I got to tolerate, like it's intellectual. No, it's, it's the will. I have to tolerate an atheist at the command of the God whom he denies. But I don't have to think he's right. 
Now, the tolerant people today, they say, well, if you think you know what's right, well, then you're intolerant. I don't have to commit intellectual suicide in order to be tolerant. If I know something is true, I, I'm going to embrace the truth. In fact, by God's gifts of intelligence to me, I must, I must engage in a relentless search for truth. And at the same time, I must embrace the good because he gave me the will. So these are things that uh, we, we have to keep in mind. This, this whole, I remember I was giving, a, I used to do, what would you call that, uh, stand-up comedy and play guitar and sing different songs, you know. And I did this to, to have pin money for the missions. I sent a lot of money to the missions doing that. And this one time I was uh, at a place, it was a testimonial dinner to a couple in a place called, uh, uh, what was it? It was in Illinois. I'll think of it. But anyhow, it was this testimony of dinner for a couple. And after I got done entertaining, I was putting my guitar in the case, you know. And this lady comes up to me, and she bats her eyes at me. And she goes, oh, Father, she says, isn't it wonderful today how we can love one another in spite of our different beliefs? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I said, I prefer to think I love others because of my beliefs, not in spite of them. And then she goes, oh, thank you, Father. <laughs> and then I really was confused. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then I, I asked the pastor afterwards, I said, hey, who's that lady over there? And he says, oh, she's the mother of the, uh, the, the wife of this couple. I said, oh. And he said, then he said, she's Jewish. And then I said, oh. She was greatly relieved to figure that she was not abusing her conscience by consorting with these Gentiles. <laughs> this we'll get into in our next, uh, our next talk. Because what is most important is that you understand the why. Why did we call the council? You know, in any issue, like in the liturgy, the big problem was they didn't tell people why they wanted to change the liturgy. They didn't even say, why do you worship God? And if you don't, I, I always say the, the, the uh, if, you, if you say, here, Jesus said, I'll draw a line here. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Are we above the Sabbath? No. Are we beneath the Sabbath? No. We're the very reason for it. If we don't observe the Sabbath, we suffer. The Sabbath doesn't suffer. We do. But we're not above it. We're not beneath it. There's a reason for it. And if you don't understand the why of worship, you're in big trouble. I mean, if you go to church, you know, and you think you're going to keep God in a constant state of repair, or you're going to bring God into, you know, go, oh, God, now you owe me one, you know. Is that why you go to church? Oh, that ain't going to work. Go to church to love and praise God. The petition to express your sorrow for having offended him and to dedicate yourself to being the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and the leaven of the loaf. And I thank you very much for your listening. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. Children on their way to school, it's a familiar sight in our country. But for 40 boys in Nepal, the journey means two days on a bus and another five days walking. That's how far away they live from the nearest school. Thanks to local priests in the area, the boys have a home while attending classes. And these priests also offer them loving care and the message of God's great love. Although we are all asked to sacrifice, more often God asks us to sustain others with our loving kindness. It's a lesson from the missions. 
brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family and mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio Presents. In the first of our three-part series on the Second Vatican Council, we looked into the origins of the council and to why Pope John XXIII decided to convene this worldwide assembly of bishops just 90 days after the College of Cardinals had elected him Pope. Just 90 days. This inquiry took us into European history, starting way back at the fall of the Roman Empire when the church had to take over running society, through the Renaissance, when the church was no longer really needed or appreciated, into the beginning of the 19th century when Napoleon, in 1809, kidnapped Pius VII, kidnapped the Pope, on up to the pontificate of Pius IX from 1848 to 1878, the last Pope to head the temporal empire of the church, which was comprised of the uh, papal states in Italy. We then turned our attention to the next five popes over the course of the following 80 years, led the church into the modern era, beginning with Leo XIII and reaching its culmination in the writings of Pope Pius XII, who, uh, as I mentioned, was thought by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to be the most brilliant mind of the 20th century. This long line of exceptional and energetic popes transformed the church from being an insecure temporal European power into becoming an international leader, not only in matters of faith and morals, but very significantly in the public arenas of social and economic justice. In this brief overview, we also took note of the adversarial relationships that had developed between the church and political and religious reformers, and between the church and those of a scientific bent of mind who wanted to do away with philosophy and theology and replace it, of course, with science. This peculiar three-cornered alliance against all things Catholic was actually very providential because it occasioned much of the development of church thought well into the 20th century. We pointed to these developments in the writings of the popes from Leo XIII to Pius XII, beginning with Leo's encyclical on social justice, Rerum Novarum, and his rejection of socialism as a legitimate form of governance in Quod Apostolici Munaris, by reason of his apostolic office, and his letter on the necessity for Catholics to read the Bible in Providentissimus Deus. We noted also how these writings were reaffirmed and developed by subsequent popes on the Bible, for example, by both Benedict XV in Spiritus Paracletus and Pius XII in encyclical Divino Afflante Spiritu, by the um, influence or the uh, flaming of the divine spirit. On social justice, by Pius X's efforts to promote peace and Pius XI's encyclical Quadragesimo Anno, which means 40 years after the uh, Rerum Novarum, which was written in 1890. And he developed uh, some more theory on, uh, on governance, like uh, subsidiarity and co-responsibility. Pius XII 
followed the lead of Pius X, who had introduced early and frequent communion. Pius XII outlined the essential aspects of liturgical reform in his encyclical Mediator Dei. So overall, what did the popes write about? Well, they wrote on, as I just mentioned, liturgy, scripture, devotion to the Sacred Heart, the Christian family, missionary enterprise, the essential role of the laity in the mission of the church, the reunification of Christendom, the mystical body of Christ, basic human rights such as freedom of conscience, access to private property, the right to a living wage, and the assurance of justice and peace as demanded by the very nature of human dignity. For the most part, that list of topics which I, I just gave represents the agenda that was to be taken up by the Second Vatican Council. So the Second Vatican Council just didn't fall out of the sky. Now in our first session, finally, we also took note of the fact that when Vatican II was called, the world, not the church, was in crisis. This was the time that was characterized by what was known as MAD strategy, mutually assured destruction, MAD. That was the, we were in the grip of a cold war. We were building bomb shelters and teaching kids how to dive under their desks when, if, it, if we were going to have an atomic attack. That's when the, the council was called. And with the colonial era coming to a close at that time, there were more than 40 hot wars going on all around the world. They brought on genocide, epidemic disease, starvation, political oppression, economic exploitation, still going on today, incidentally, a severe shortage of medical and educational resources, and a refugee population in the millions that continues to grow. So in calling for the council, Pope John XXIII saw what was going on in the world. He put it in these words, quote, Today the church is witnessing a crisis underway within society. While humanity is on the edge of a new era, tasks of immense gravity and amplitude await the church as in the most tragic periods of its history. Now, in reference to the church itself, again, in the words of John the 23rd, here is what he saw. Quote, Thus, though the world may appear profoundly changed, the Christian community is also in great part transformed and renewed. It has therefore strengthened itself socially in unity. It has been reinvigorated intellectually. It has been interiorly purified and is thus ready for trial. He thought the church was in very good shape. So with all of this in mind, we now come to the event. This is part two. The concerns that Vatican II sought to address had been the subject of more than 100 papal encyclicals on social justice alone, with many more encyclicals, radio talks, and speeches on a full range of topics delivered to pilgrims and professional groups that came to meet in Rome. However, for all of that, Vatican II took the church and the world by surprise. In part, I mean real surprise. Everybody was surprised. In part, this was because the church was, had been perceived as monolithic, opposed to change, out of touch with the modern world, and unwilling to make any accommodations to contemporary demands for personal autonomy, and for a more participatory form of governance. What added to the surprise, however, was the fact that the council, 
intentionally or otherwise, became a media event on a global scale, a happening without precedent in religious affairs. There were reporters from all over the world. And Marsha McLuhan's rule, the medium is the message, certainly applied. For by inviting the medium, the media, the church was making a statement. It had no intention to work in secrecy behind closed doors. It wasn't about to hatch any devious designs on humanity. It was there to serve humanity, so both the workings and the contents of its deliberations would be open to the entire world. Another thing that we should mention again is that this council was truly ecumenical. The word ecumenical comes from the Greek uh, word oikos, which means house, and which by extension means inhabited. An ecumenical council then is one that takes in the entire inhabited world. This, the 21st General Council of the Church, was the first to have a substantial representation from parts other than the Western world. Of the 2,500 bishops who would attend the council, Fully one-third, some 900, were from what was once known as mission countries, found mostly in the developing world. This added perspective to the proceedings brought discussion from the abstract level down to that of concrete reality where people were suffering, where they were in serious need of assistance. Here's how this perspective found expression in the Council's opening message to humanity. Coming together in unity from every nation under the sun, we carry in our hearts the hardships, the bodily and mental distress, the sorrows, longings, and hopes of all the people entrusted to us. We urgently turn our thoughts to all the anxieties by which modern man is afflicted. Hence, let our concerns swiftly focus, first of all, on those who are especially lowly, poor, and weak. Like Christ, we would have pity on the multitude weighed down with hunger, misery, and lack of knowledge. We want to fix a steady gaze on those who still lack the opportune help to achieve a way of life worthy of human beings. There's one other thing we should take into account before we begin our searching inquiry into the what of the Second Vatican Council. By its own declaration, the council was called not to deal with doctrinal matters, but with pastoral concerns. Now, to the minds of many of those who took issue with the advisability or even the legitimacy of the council, this is a key consideration. To their way of thinking, a general council has validity only insofar as it deals with doctrine, not pastoral practice. However, inasmuch as pastoral practice is based on doctrine, the declared goal of the council as a pastoral council would necessarily entail a fresh look at how the church's eternal beliefs are to be applied in the modern world. So to review these points very briefly, first of all, the council took the church and the world by surprise. Secondly, it was a surprise largely because people saw the church as monolithic and intransigent without due regard for informed opinion and democratic procedures. Thirdly, it was a global media event, open to and addressing the needs of everyone. Fourthly, fully one-third of the bishops in attendance came from the developing world. And finally, 
The council was concerned with doctrine only insofar as it pertained to pastoral practice. So what was the Second Vatican Council? In ordinary everyday language, it was a self-study, the church taking a look at itself. In the business world, it would now be called an exercise in strategic thinking. In psychology, it was more on the order of a personality inventory. In the vocabulary of the church, it was a process of discernment. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, seeking consensus on defining the identity of the church in the modern world. Now, that's a whole big mouthful. But that's what it was, a process of discernment, coming together to discern under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the identity and purpose of the church in the modern world. Now, here's what I mean by these terms, strategic thinking. It's called also management planning. And it deals with the most critical need for any organization or body, defining its identity. The first job of leadership is vision. You know, if you're a leader, guess what you've got to do? You've got to have that vision. Otherwise, you fall in a ditch, like Jesus said. You've got to be able to see things. And you have to be able to define your identity. If you're a duck and you think you're a horse, you're in big trouble. Now, it's the first of all, this is a process where a company or group tries to figure out what is its self-image. How does it see itself? And this brings into consideration right away the notion of purpose, identity, purpose. What does this organization consist of and what does it hope to achieve? Each of these two elements, identity and purpose, contribute to the other. If they don't, the organization will experience an identity crisis and will find itself unequipped to meet its goals. The clearest example of how identity and purpose are interrelated can be found in the life of Christ. He had but one purpose to do, that is, to fulfill the will of the Father. Time and time again in reading the Gospels, we find Jesus saying, and these are equivalent words, I have come to do the will of the one who sent me. In Psalm 40, quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, we find the prophetic description of Christ's mission. Then I said, quote, as it is written of me in the book, I have come to do your will, O God. After his conversation with the woman at the well, when his disciples were pressing him to take something to eat, Jesus told them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. My food is doing the will of him who sent me and bringing his work to completion. Find this in chapter 4 of John. In explaining that he is the bread of life in that beautiful chapter 6, Jesus said, It is not to do my own will that I have come down from heaven, but to do the will of him who sent me. Everything that Jesus did, even as he was coming of age, was to fulfill the Father's will. When discovered in the temple by Mary and Joseph, after they had been searching anxiously for him for three days, Jesus asked his parents with some consternation, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? His purpose, his motivation, his source of energy, his very identity and his only intent was to incarnate and reveal the father's eternal love for all of his children. Jesus himself was incarnate love. 
Clearly then, Jesus did not see his mission as something outside of himself, as some kind of external objective or a goal to achieve, like being the best teacher or the greatest miracle worker or the most gracious person in all of human history. Nor did he see his mission as a function he was to perform. Rather, for him, it was his very way of being, a revelation of the unconditional and everlasting love of God for all of us, actualized and made manifest in his, the Messiah's, unique relationship to both God and humanity. So intimate is the connection between identity and purpose in Christ that they are indeed one and the same. When we say, for example, that Christ died for us, we're not referring to his death as an isolated event that took place on a given Friday afternoon. We mean that Christ laid down his life for us not only on that day, but on every day. That Christ of his very nature was, is, and always will be our Savior, moved to redeem us from our selfishness and sin out of his love for the Father and for us as the instrument of God's goodness and mercy. This is what the church is supposed to be after Vatican II, identity and purpose, one and the same. Now, maybe on a more mundane level, uh, let me describe this strategic thinking <laughs> where in language you might better understand. Take IBM in its heyday. IBM did not see itself only in terms of manufacturing or as a sales-oriented company or even as a developer of new products. IBM saw itself as a competent core of professionals fully prepared to market a comprehensive service that included research and development, manufacturing, sales, distribution, training, maintenance, consulting, and problem solving. That was their sense of identity. And people recognized this in IBM because that's how IBM saw itself. Other examples here would include, uh, like, Caterpillar. You know, Caterpillar, they were making these big, you know, earth-moving, this big earth-moving equipment. It wasn't like selling lollipops. You know, you can make a lot of lollipops and don't cost much, and you don't have to take out a bank loan to get a bottle of lollipop. But you buy a big old Caterpillar, you've got to take out a bank loan. And if that Caterpillar quits working, guess what? You're going to default on your loan. And then there's, a, there's a, a loss to Caterpillar. So Caterpillar didn't want that to happen. They did not decide just to make good uh, earth-moving equipment. They decided if that thing shut down, they would have the spare part there needed within 24 or 48 hours. And they used to do this on a global scale. I mean, they knew that they had to get those, keep those machines running. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.